Welcome to episode 24 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Felipe Tran, the Associate Director of the Center for Resuscitation Science here at University of Pennsylvania. What is the TTM Academy? The TTM Academy at Penn is University of Pennsylvania's multidisciplinary initiative to improve the quality of care following cardiac arrest. The TTM Academy is a comprehensive educational platform that was developed by the Center for Resuscitation Science here at University of Pennsylvania and that is designed to provide training in all aspects of post-arrest cardiac arrest, including targeted temperature management therapies or TTM. You can check us out at www.penttm.com where you can find all episodes of this podcast and much more, including online training courses, live courses, and workshops. You can also follow us on Twitter at PennTTM, where you can send us your questions or ideas for future topics you would like us to discuss. Today, we're going to review a recent investigation dedicated to a critical element of the bundle of post-arrest care, and that is the evaluation of underlying pathologies that could have triggered the arrest, and specifically in this case, myocardial infarction as a cause of the arrest. We know that electrocardiography, or ECG, is an important tool to triage patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest after return of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC. The investigation we're going to review today is a recent study published in JAMA Network Open. This uh, study was titled Association of Timing of electrocardiogram acquisition after return of spontaneous circulation with coronary angiography findings in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This was a study by a European group led by Dr. Enrico Baldi and senior author Simone Savastano. This was a multi-center study, a retrospective study, that um, aimed to answer a pretty uh, interesting and important and clinically relevant question. And that is, is the time from return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC to electrocardiogram acquisition associated with the percentage of false positive ECG findings for ST elevation myocardial infarction or STEMI in patients who experience out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? In other words, does the timing of that ECG that we get after we resuscitate the patient in, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, matter, and just the accuracy of that EKG predicting an occlusive lesion in the coronaries as a possible underlying cause of that cardiac arrest with the timing um, of that ECG. So to give you the, the key take-home points um, up front, this will say um, cohort study, a retrospective study that involved 370 patients who were resuscitated from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What they wanted to look at was the percentage of false positive EKGs or ECGs um, and the false positive uh, findings in those ECGs amongst those performed seven minutes or less after ROSC and uh, compare those with the ECGs performed between minutes 8 and 33 minutes, and then after 33 minutes. So they divided uh, patients um, after the resuscitation, patients that have achieved ROSC in the emergency department, in these three categories. And they compared the percentage, the proportion of false positive ECGs 
um, and their findings in these three categories. The study suggests that the early identification uh, of patients with STEMI, specifically, that the early ECG acquisition after ROSC is actually associated with higher percentage of false positive ECG findings. This actually makes sense, at least mechanistically, and I think it's something that many of us have wondered. Um, however, it's surprising that there had been no research really conducted to this end. So let's review some of the details of, um, of this study. This was, uh, as I said, a study conducted in Europe. It was a retrospective multi-center cohort involving three centers in Italy, in Switzerland, in Austria. In Austria. They um, wanted to uh, the defined as the primary endpoint, the false positive ECG findings, defined as the percentage of patients with post-ROSC ECG findings that met the STEMI criteria, but did not have an obstructive coronary artery lesion on the angiography that was worthy of percutaneous coronary angioplasty, or PCI. So what exactly um, did they do? What was, let's review the patient um, selection of this cohort. This um, were, as I said, a retrospective uh, analysis of data that um, they had in these three centers. They um, enrolled, or the, the patients that were included in the study, uh, were all adult patients who had been resuscitated for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest between 2015 and 2018, who were admitted to one of, of these three centers. Only the patients who underwent a coronary angiography during the uh, admission to the hospital and who had a post-ROSC ECG performed before that angiography were actually enrolled in this study. So that's critical piece of information right there, which is essentially the inclusion um, criteria for, for the study. The variables that they uh, collected, that they looked at, uh, included um, standard cardiac arrest variables um, and outcomes um, for uh, were following the uh, Utstein, um style recommendations. They had um, two cardiologists that uh, looked at all the um, ECG findings, at all the EKGs uh, for each of the centers. They were blinded to both the coronary angiography findings as well as the time that had elapsed between ROSC and the uh, ECG acquisition. Um, so two cardiologists per center looked at this, at this ECGs. Um, if there was any doubt regarding the interpretation, they brought in a third cardiologist and asked for for additional um, interpretation to settle those controversial cases. In addition to that, each ECG was actually categorized as either diagnostic or not diagnostic of STEMI according to the criteria of um, the um, electrocardiographic diagnosis of STEMI uh, defined by the European Society uh, Cardiology Guidelines uh, for, for STEMI. How uh, did they uh, define uh, what was a significant lesion in, in geography? So for all those patients that had undergone uh, PCI, or coronary angiography, they uh, were interested specifically, they, they uh, assess specifically for the presence of a significant coronary uh, artery stenosis. Um, they determine also the number of vessels in which the stenosis was present and the execution of um, 
any uh, percutaneous intervention, according to the report of those uh, angiographies. They uh, defined, uh, and this is important as well, uh, the, a significant lesion if it was greater than 50% for the left main coronary artery, so 50% for the LAD, and greater than or equal to 75% for other, uh, any of the other coronary arteries. In terms of uh, the timings uh, of the study, they, um, on the basis of uh, the post-ROSC ECG and the coronary angiography findings, they d uh, divided, they split this cohort of patients um, into two groups. Those with true positive ECG findings, which were the patients that had a post-ROSC ECG finding that met the STEMI criteria and that had an obstructive coronary artery lesion uh, that was found worthy of PCI, of uh, coronary intervention, in the angiography. The patients, that was the first group. The second group were the patients with the true negative ECG findings that included those that had post-ROSC ECG findings that did not meet criteria for STEMI and did not have an obstructive lesion on the angiography. The third page, uh, group of patients were those that had false positive or defined as false positive ECG findings. And this is important because this were this was the, the, the end point um, that, that they were interested in. So false positive ECG findings, and that uh, included the patients that had a post-ROSC ECG finding that met the STEMI criteria, but yet did not have an obstructive coronary artery lesion uh, worthy of uh, angiography intervention. Lastly, the fourth group in this uh, cohort was the patients with what they called false negative ECG findings. And those included the patients that had post-ROSC ECG findings that did not meet STEMI criteria, but um, when they went to angiography actually were, to were found to have an obstructive coronary artery lesion that was worthy of um, PCI intervention on the angiography. They did standard logistic regression to analyze the association um, of the uh, between the time from ROSC and false positive ECG findings. They also fitted a multi-variable model using the time from ROSC uh, categorized into this tertiles that I mentioned in the beginning according to the timing post-ROSC. Um, and they did also uh, a statistical um, assessment um, uh, specifically a, a bi uh, bivariable model for each of uh, a set of predefined potential confounders, including sex, um, age of 62 years uh, older or younger, number of segments uh, with ST segment elevation of one or more um, um, as the as a cutoff, a QRS uh, duration over 20, 120 uh, milliseconds or uh, under tw uh, 120 milliseconds, heart rate of 100 uh, per minute as a cutoff, the uh, epinephrine uh, amount administered of one or more milligrams, the initial rhythm, and lastly, the number of shocks um, administered. Uh, and they define the cutoff there at three, so under three or three or more. So what did they find? They had 586 consecutive patients who were admitted to the three participating sites. Importantly, um, from those 152 patients, that is 26%, 
did not undergo post-ROSC ECG before the coronary angiography. And uh, 10% or 11% rather, so 64 of those patients, did not receive a coronary angiography and thus were excluded. So as a result, their final uh, cohort uh, they derived in this study had 370 patients in whom, uh, from, from whom 172 patients had ECGs that were not diagnostic of STEMI and 188 patients with ECGs that were diagnostic of, of STEMI. So what did they find in terms of their um, results? Well, between they of course did comparisons between uh, the two groups, the, the group that was diagnostic for STEMI and the group that was not diagnostic for STEMI. The, the uh, results are described in uh, table one of the paper, and I recommend that all listeners uh, take a look at it. But going straight to the primary end, the, the primary endpoint of the study, which uh, as a reminder, were the false positive ECG findings and the time from ROSC uh, to post-ROSC ECG acquisition. So when they looked at the three teratile, these three um, groups of patients, they found that the time from ROSC to post-ROSC ECG acquisition in the teratile uh, number one, the first group, which was under seven uh, or seven or uh, under seven minutes, um, the percentage of false positive ECG findings uh, in that group was significantly higher than in the second tertile, um, which was eight, between 8 minutes to 33 minutes. And that was an odds ratio of 0.34. The third tertile, that was the group between uh, 8 and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, th 33 or more minutes after ROSC, um, also had a lower uh, rate of uh, false positive ECG findings, and the odds ratio was 0.32 for that three group. They um, found that these differences remained significant when they adjusted for uh, sex, for the number of uh, segments of ST elevation affected, for the cure restoration, the heart rate, the epinephrine uh, given, uh, all the elements that I mentioned they had uh, adjusted for. So the same um, uh, differences in these groups uh, remained consistent. The positive predictive value of the ECG meeting the STEMI criteria in predicting the need for uh, a percutaneous intervention increased from 75% in that first group under seven minutes to 85% in the second uh, group and 83.7% in the third group, in the third tertile. Specif the specificity increased from 41% in the first tertile, the first group, to 75% in the second uh, group, and 81.6% uh, in the third group. So this is really interesting. Um, and as a reminder, um, the, it, it's pretty shocking, at least it was to me when, when I actually read the study, that uh, to learn that the, nobody had visited this question before. Um, there have been uh, a number of studies looking at uh, the uh, outcomes of patients that go for angiography um, immediately after ROSC. Um, and we can say that according to the guidelines at this point, it is a standard of care, at least according to both the American Heart Association um, and the European guidelines, that patients that have a STEMI 
uh, after ROSC, uh, the HAP criteria for STEMI in, in the ECG after ROSC, should go for an immediate um, uh, revascularization or uh, angiography uh, for potentially a uh, pr uh, procedure, percutaneous angiography. And um, there is, there have been conflicting studies uh, in, in terms of those patients that don't have a, a STEMI in their ECG after ROSC. And we have both studies that have shown some benefit uh, in terms of outcomes, as well as studies that have shown no benefit. And the latest um, and probably um, most important study to investigate that question was actually a study by Lemke's uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine that uh, actually, as a reminder, we reviewed in the same podcast in episode two um, a few months ago. Um, and that study essentially showed that there was no difference between early and delayed uh, angiography in terms of outcomes for those patients without a STEMI on their uh, EKG post-ROCs. And so, interestingly, in neither of those studies, um, the the timing uh, of the ACG had been really uh, adjusted for, had been uh, considered as an important variable, which is kind of mind-boggling. Um, and one of the, the conclusions of this study, and one of the things that the authors uh, discuss in the discussion, is um, the fact that uh, it would be important to actually go back and look at uh, those results, so the data from those multiple studies that have been conducted in the past looking at this question and include an adjustment for the timing uh, of the ECG acquisition. So when were those ECGs obtained post-ROSC um, and could that affect and potentially change the findings and the interpretation of the results um, of those studies. So um, in conclusion, we can summarize this uh, the study. They uh, found that the early acquisition of post-ROSC ECG in patients who were resuscitated from out-of-hospital arrest was associated with higher rate of patients with post-ROSC ECG findings that met the STEMI criteria, but who did not have an obstructive coronary artery disease uh, lesion that was worthy of um, a coronary invention uh, during the angiography. Therefore, what this study concludes is that um, delaying the post-ROSC ECG by at least eight minutes, that is past that the uh, time frame of seven uh, or less minutes that they um, studied in this group, in their study, after ROSC or repeating the acquisition of the first ECG uh, was diagnostic of STEMI and was acquired early after ROSC. Um, and that might be reasonable as a way to correct uh, or to correctly identify the patients who might benefit from an immediate rather than a delayed uh, coronary in, uh, angiography. So what does this mean um, clinically, or at least how uh, do I interpret this, uh, this findings of the study? Of course, lots of limitations to this study to be aware of. This is a retrospective study, has a relatively small sample size. Um, the endpoint of the coronary angiography was the execution of a percutaneous uh, uh, angioplasty um, and not uh, the identification of a culprit lesion necessarily. Um, the choice in the study to um, 
perform or the decision to perform uh, a coronary um, angiography uh, intervention in, in these patients was completely uh, um, dependent on the criteria of the interventional cardiologist that was caring for those patients. And as a retrospective study, the authors in this case um, had no control uh, over those uh, decisions uh, and potentially, uh, there could be significant differences um, in the uh, the judgment, uh, the criteria that those clinicians, uh, those interventional cardiologists actually used to decide what was actually a uh, lesion that they consider um, worthy of intervention. Uh, and why is that important? Because that was the endpoint, right? They started the study with that cohort of patients that had had the um, a coronary um, intervention performed uh, in the setting of emergent angioplasty. And so there's an important um, limitation. Uh, another important limitation is that the um, post-ROSC ECG was actually not available in 25% of the patients of that initial cohort, as I mentioned. Um, and they described that that was due to a number of factors, including the fact that the ECG was simply not performed uh, before arrival to the cath lab, which is kind of amazing. Um, the fact that in some cases the ECG was not being uh, simply not interpretable from uh, due to artifacts. Um, and in some cases, uh, that the um, ECG diagnostic of STEMI had been actually performed before the out-of-hospital arrest uh, in the case of EMS witness uh, cardiac arrest. Um, so that large chunk of patients, 25% of the initial cohort, was actually um, uh, were patients that uh, did not have um, uh, an ECG uh, before the uh, before the angiography. Um, the last uh, uh, noteworthy limitation to, to be mindful of in the interpretation of these results is the fact that the quality of the resuscitation um, of, of patients in the study uh, was not accounted for, was not evaluated. Um, so there is a potential that uh, those patients that had uh, worst quality of resuscitation, meaning, for instance, longer CPR pauses or worse quality of chest compressions um, could have had a um, more um, significant degree of ischemia uh, during that arrest, uh, and specifically cardiac ischemia that could have led to some of those false positive uh, cases. So the, um, the, 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 um, the quality of resuscitation and the lack of uh, controlling for the quality of resuscitation is another uh, potential confounder uh, to consider. For me, this are uh, definitely thought-provoking uh, findings, but not at all surprising. I think dynamic changes post-ROSC um, is something that we um, have uh, clinicians caring for patients in cardiac arrest uh, have seen uh, frequently. In our experience at, um, at our institution, we perform transesophageal echo in most of these patients immediately post-ROSC and intra-arrest as well. So this changes in contractility, changes in the heart rate, changes um, in well-motion abnormalities. These things uh, we see on a regular basis uh, changing dynamically over time, over the, the, the course of minutes. 
Um, another example that comes to my mind is the example of RV uh, dilation post-ROSC as, um, as a finding that is likely from that pooling of blood on the right side uh, from the, during the time of low flow, during the CPR and, and no flow before the, the chest compressions are, are started. Um, in, in many patients uh, without obstructive pathology, in most patients that don't have, say, an underlying PE, we see that that RV quickly goes back to a normal diameter uh, in those initial minutes post-arrest. And if we were just to analyze that RV dilation immediately post-ROSC as a, as a, um, as a sign, uh, as a diagnosis um, of uh, massive PE, we would potentially uh, give uh, many more patients uh, thrombolytics. And um, so th it this is an example that comes, a comparison that perhaps I find practical um, and that some, somehow uh, I think represents well those uh, dynamic changes that are occurring uh, in the heart. It makes sense that the timing for that post-ROS ECG uh, will in fact affect the findings and particularly the distinction between what is transmural ischemia due to the underlying um, injury itself, uh, that is the arrest um, as an insult, and uh, an underlying coronary lesion. Um, so as I, as I said, thought-provoking but not at all surprising and this is I think what makes this study really so interesting. I think this uh, also reminds us about the what is the right question. The right question is not who has a STEMI or not. The right question is um, post-arrest, doing this post-arrest phase, is was an underlying coronary lesion that prompted, that triggered the arrest. The guidelines aim for simplicity, for one size fits all. We want to have a binary decision algorithm. If STEMI, cath lab. If no STEMI, no cath lab. However, it is possible that some studies have suggested in the past that some patients with an underlying lesion that may have triggered the arrest, but yet not have a STEMI, may in fact benefit from emerging PCI. Similarly, that some patients with a post-ROSC ECG consistent with STEMI might in fact not benefit from an emergent PCI when such STEMI in the ECG is actually due to generalized, not regional coronary myocardial um, ischemia. And those patients may perhaps benefit from other uh, means of support, for instance, mechanical support or ECMO or Impellus. It is possible that the answer to this problem is simply not as simple as we want it to be, that the best outcomes might come from an individualized approach to these patients with multimodal diagnostic um, uh, uh, methods. Maybe it's not the findings in one ECG, but rather the trend of ECG over a period of time following ROSC. Maybe artificial intelligence will help us to create the algorithms needed to quickly determine those trends and identify which hearts are more likely to be acute um, due to uh, or going through an acute occlusive uh, coronary event and those that are not, um, as their response to post-ROS chemodynamic optimization goes on. So how is it going to change my practice personally? I think at minimum doing more than one 
ECG in those minutes following ROSC makes sense, and it's probably not going to affect the overall timing between ROSC and CAFA for those uh, patients that end up going for emergent angiography. Getting two ECGs over 10 minutes to decide instead of simply one, I think that is a reasonable approach, uh, at least for me personally. But of course, at this point, we do need more evidence to make uh, any general recommendations. And I think with that, we will uh, finish this episode. I look forward to seeing you in or to listening to or to speaking to you in the next episode, episode 25 of the TTM Academy podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PennTTM. And this is Felipe Trian signing off. Bye-bye.